A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Hello and welcome. I'm Tim Farron and this is the show where you get to hear from a Christian politician about how they live out their faith in the mucky business of politics. Now you might think that politics is tainted by compromise and sin and of course you'd be right but then again so is everything else since the fall and I think Christians should be praying for their brothers and sisters who are involved in politics in an informed way. Today we're speaking about why Christianity has been politicized so much in the United States of America. Our guest is Michael Weir. Michael worked in the White House during Barack Obama's first term, leading evangelical outreach and helping manage the Obama administration's engagement on religious and values issues. He then directed their faith outreach on Obama's 2012 re-election campaign. But before we speak to Michael, here's Cara Bentley with a roundup of some of the news this week. Well, no sooner that we informed you last week that in Northern Ireland, Edwin Poots was the new leader of the DUP and Paul Given, the first minister of Northern Ireland, that that plan goes into complete disarray with Edwin Poots resigning after just 21 days. His DUP colleagues felt he was ceding too much ground to Sinn Féin, the party they have to share power with. So after removing Arlene Foster, Mr Poots got the boot as well. Sir Geoffrey Donaldson, a DUP MP, will likely take over. In America, President Biden has attended Mass, despite a vote which could see him being banned in the future. Catholic bishops in the US have voted to draft new guidance which would advise that people who diverge from the church's stance on abortion should be denied Holy Communion. And in other news, one MP has called for the Bishop of St David's in Wales to step down following a tweet saying never, never trust a Tory. Bishop Joe Penbethy has since apologised and deactivated her Twitter account, but MP Chris Loder, who rings church bells in Dorset and is a Tory himself, wrote that he is increasingly uncomfortable seeing the Anglican Church shift their focus towards day-to-day political matters and away from, in his view, faith and spiritual well-being. Tim, we see institutions change, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. And we've obviously seen society shift a lot in how it operates in the last year. As it seems we are near coming out the other side, how do you think Christians should respond to these day-to-day changes that COVID has caused? Well, the world is definitely changing and pretty rapidly as a result of what we've seen in the last 15 months. It might seem like a, a minor, though maybe positive thing, but this week we've seen the launch of a new rail season ticket for part-time commuters. New tickets can be used for eight days in any month-long period. It's a nice idea, one which will save people who travel to work a decent amount of money, but it's also a clear sign that the pandemic will have a lasting impact on our lives. For many people, working at home has had its benefits. It's better for childcare. It might mean that you don't waste two hours or more each day stuck in traffic or sat on public transport. It's cheaper. The new part-time season ticket reflects the probability that while many of us will return to the office, we might not do it as often as we used to. But let's not overstate this. The idealised picture of working from home is a rather comfortable middle-class construct. What about young workers who house share or others whose homes are or their home life just don't make working there any kind of a benefit? Nevertheless, for millions of workers, things are changing. Now, how do Christians cope with this? change is stressful. We can see society developing in ways that we don't approve of. As Western cultures move away from a biblical understanding of morality, we can make two mistakes. First is to assume that the culture we've moved away from 
was some kind of golden age, when of course it wasn't. It was just flawed in different ways, full of performative religiosity, hypocrisy, cruelty, discrimination and legalism. The second mistake is to assume that all changes are bad. Some are, but some aren't, and many more are simply neutral. Whether they are good or bad depends on our reactions to them. Succumbing to one or both of these mistakes can make Christians miserable and less effective. We can react to new perspectives and new ways with a knee-jerk hostility. We should be careful about that because it won't be a good witness and we won't always be right. C.S. Lewis spoke about the snobbery of chronology. That is the incorrect idea that human progress is inevitable and that, for example, the 2020s are automatically better than 1970s. Of course, they are in parts and of course they aren't in parts. The reality is, though, that folks in the 2070s will surely look back on our culture today and either mock or deride several features of it. To assume that we are better than our ancestors is snobbery. It's arrogant. But the snobbery of chronology works both ways. The past was not necessarily better than the present either. If it seems so to us, well, that's probably just a feature of the fact that we were younger then. Since the fall, humanity and all of our cultures have been flawed. Christians can fall into the trap, just like anyone else, of getting comfortable with how things are and becoming unsettled when things change. The thing is, change can be exciting, but it can also cause great anxiety. Christians have the resources to deal with that change far better than anyone else, which can then enable us to help society cope and prosper too. Why? Because we know that every society is flawed, just in different ways, and that the changes that come will also be flawed, even if some of those changes are broadly positive. In Hebrews we read, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and always. And in Ecclesiastes, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And then in Deuteronomy, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Change can be benign, malign or neutral, but the enduring sovereignty of God his good plan for his creation and his passionate committed love for his children means that we can face those changes with a settled heart and without fear. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. This week we're talking about how Christianity has been politicised in America. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then what should determine who you vote for? Michael Weir is a white evangelical Christian who's involved in American politics. That is not unusual. That he is a Democrat is. And he led the faith outreach for Barack Obama and advised on how to connect with evangelicals. So what does he have to say about how Christianity has got so tied up in politics and the religious literacy of America? Michael, it's an absolute delight, pleasure and honour to have you with us. Tell us first, if you wouldn't mind, how you became a Christian in the first place. Yeah, sure. So, uh, well, it's great to be with you. And uh it's uh, uh, looking back. It's so uh, we've been friends for what seems like a long time now, uh, which is uh, which is wonderful. Uh, well, Tim, I um, I grew up in uh, Buffalo, New York, which is in America's Rust Belt, and grew up in a Italian Catholic family, like it seemed everyone I grew up around. Uh, but religion sort of set the backdrop for our lives. We did fish fries on Fridays and, and that kind of thing, but didn't have a whole lot of sort of uh, deep theological uh, relevance. When I was 15, a number of things happened, but the, the, the critical thing was I was handed a tract 
that was just Paul's letter to the Romans. So just Romans. And instead of throwing it out, I took it home and read it and read it again. And it, it changed, uh, it changed everything. My sister who had become a Christian a few years before, before I did, she was, um, she had been working on me for quite some time. And I was uh, like a little brother uh, should, I guess, uh, a pretty resistant to that. But I, I told her uh, a few days after I had, after I had been given that track that I'd given my life to Christ. And so that changed everything. I was, I was interested in, in politics and civic life before I was a Christian. My grandfather was a union guy and, and uh, wasn't political, but was, was very civically minded. And, um, and, and so I had that when I became a Christian, I thought, well, now I need to like go to seminary, become a pastor. You just kind of want to do the most Christian thing possible. Thankfully, I had someone uh, in my life, a pastor, who said, you know, Michael, if you look around, uh, there are Christians who are not pastors. And I thought, well, that's a that's a good observation. And uh, and so I started uh, right about then on a journey of sort of the vocational question that's got in my life is is, is kind of what does it mean to be faithful uh, in public things? And and that's um, I, I've been holding to that, uh, uh, pursuing that for uh, a decade and a half now. Yeah. Wonderful. Now, you, um, if I can fast track, you you were at a, a conference one day and you got your diary wrong <laughs> and something That's exciting right. happened instead. Tell me about it. Yeah. So I was, uh, I believe, a, a freshman in college, supposed to be leading a group of students to a political convention at a hotel in D.C. And like you said, I had the wrong date. And so I'm, I'm leaving the hotel embarrassed and dejected and on my way out through the lobby uh, a young senator by the name of Barack Obama was walking in and he would announce that he was running for president a few days later. Uh, but at that point, he didn't have a huge sort of, uh, he didn't have secret service at that time. He didn't have a huge uh, group of people around him. So uh, I followed his career and told him I wanted to work for him. And 10 months later, I was in Iowa and from Iowa to Chicago and from Chicago to uh, to the White House, as they say. Um, it was an incredible, incredible journey. We don't have long enough to do justice to that, but it's still pretty cool. Now, okay, and so from Iowa to Chicago, from Chicago to the White House, you find yourself in the White House. One of the things that, you know, you and I have in common is that we're people who are, you know, in a political sense, liberal, now we say it's centre-left, um, and we're Christians. In the States, you know, you are a white, evangelical Christian, and you're not a conservative Republican. How does that work? Yeah, well, uh, so I, I would imagine some of it is family background. Like I said, I grew up in a blue collar union Democratic family. And uh, at the time when I was growing up, you know, my grandfather is an FDR, uh, was a, a FDR Democrat. So that that plays a role. You know, when I was coming to faith, because I was already interested in politics, I was wrestling through sort of the political and social implications, uh, as well as sort of asking like questions about the Odyssey and, and those kinds of things. And I noticed, hey, you know, there's a, a lot of talk of injustice in the scriptures, a lot of talk of, 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 of poverty. And, and it, it seems to be, um, th these are kind of the, the, the deepest uh, grounds that you could be rooted in. And I looked around at what sort of 
I saw what Christians throughout history had done. I, I, I saw, thought of people like Wilberforce, thought of people like King. And, uh, and so I was layering all of this around, you know, I became a Christian in the early aughts when very much the height of the religious right in some senses, they felt like they had, they had gotten their guy in, in the White House and in terms of political power. Um, and I thought that there was some merit to, to Bush. I wasn't completely opposed to everything he did. I certainly worked hard to, as a young kid to uh, try and defeat him and then uh, help elect his successor. But I just didn't feel like there was this one-to-one map of sort of whatever the Republican Party happened to be for at the time, which often was different than what they were for 10 years ago, uh, Mm -hmm. on the Christian faith. You know, Mm -hmm. it's been very important to me. And I think it's really important now, Tim, that we have an understanding that faith is to uh, guide us and motivate us. And the Christian faith has incredible resources uh, for our social and political lives, not just our personal lives. But as C.S. Lewis wrote, you know, Christianity does not offer a particular political program. And when we reduce it to that, when we equate faithfulness with a certain set of policy priorities, we're doing great disservice to the gospel. We're actually treating what is prudential as sort of ultimate and dogmatic. And what that does is that undermines our ability to proclaim what is ultimate. Uh, and so that, that's been important in my life. I, I think it's important right now. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously, I, I'm bound to agree with you. Do you. I'm putting words in your mouth here. But do you think that the fact that 80% plus of you know, white evangelical in the States would consider themselves to be conservative and to pretty much rigidly vote the Republican Party, do you think that attachment, particularly during the Trump years, um, does damage to the ability to get the gospel heard? I think the social science on this has been pretty clear that, that, that yes, the conflation and right. It's not even conservatism. It's the conflation of the faith with a political party. And it's because political parties are these fluid, uh, uh, these fluid things that are often compromising and changing and, and when you attach yourself to a political party and, and say, this is the party for Christians, this is the party for, for real Christians, and then that party flip-flops or, or changes or gets caught in scandal, th- then what are you saying about saying about the faith? Now, I will say, right, so it's, um, it's important to understand in, in America, it's not that white evangelicals are all politically conservative. They're, they're not all reading uh, Milton Friedman. Um, evangelical politics gets reduced in the States mm. to a, a position on two or three key issues. Mm. It's helpful in some ways in that politics is very complicated. And wouldn't we all love to have a very simple two, three question way of saying, well, this is who I should vote for. Here's who I must oppose. That's how politics has worked out um, among evangelicals to, to a certain extent. People are not applying their faith to politics. They have a certain set of questions which they supplant, which comes to represent their faith, which helps to simplify and sort of direct their political priorities. But, but for instance, just to add to that, when you have referendum on, for instance, uh, union rights or the minimum wage mm. or something like uh, Florida just recently passed 
something on restoring uh, voting rights to felons. You see white evangelicals uh, support those kinds of actions in far greater numbers than they support Democratic candidates. But when it's between a pro-choice and a pro-life candidate, you, uh, you, you see a sort of 75, 25, 80, 20 split. That is really interesting. I mean, let's just go back to those first, well, the, the time you spent in the White House. And uh, Barack Obama was elected, um, you know, a good, clear mandate, uh, historic election. What was it like for you um, getting your voice heard in that administration? Um, were there other Christians around you? How seriously was your voice um, heard by Barack Obama, Joe Biden and the, and the others in that administration? Again, it was an honor and a privilege was able to help the president and the White House navigate some pretty incredible challenges and opportunities. I think my voice was taken seriously. I think the voice of Christians taken seriously, particularly at the top, when you're talking about the president and the, and the vice president. I, I think increasingly, Tim, and I, I think uh, I'd be interested to hear whether you think you're seeing this on, on the other side of the Atlantic, but the federal bureaucracy has gotten so large and staff in government are filled by people largely who work in the campaigns and arise through party machinery. And in order to rise, you're often talking about people who are willing to be field organizers for the first decade of their life. Well, people aren't being field organizers, Tim, and, and working below minimum wage because they really want to like strengthen the middle class, you know, like that's not the motivating impulse. These are, these are activists. And, and so activists get uh, some, some of these roles, particularly at the mid-level. And, and so I, I've written about this in the past, but there, there certainly is a religious literacy problem among elite Democrats and really elites in American life in, in general that um, wouldn't be unfamiliar in in the UK, but it's kind of new here. I mean, a generation ago, you could you could assume that people will know. For instance, in a policy document, Tim, I used the phrase uh, "the least of these," and, and uh, some of the people responsible for signing off on that document had no idea what it yeah. what it meant and deleted it from the document. I had to reinsert it and say, "Oh, this is a this is a scriptural reference. This is uh, this, this is one of the most." famous phrases in human history. <laughs> um, uh, uh, but, you know, those were things that you navigate through. The, the last thing I'll say here, Tim, is I think that there's an impression among some that there is like great levels of antagonism among Democrats for people of faith, for traditional values, whatever. What, what, what I'd say is my experience has been that there's there's actually very few people who wake up in the morning thinking like you know how how do I go after religious freedom today or how do I there there's more you can find pockets of indifference and, and a lack of familiarity which is a great gospel opportunity like antagonism is one thing but what we have to understand in in the United States and I think which is true in the UK which is that we have a we're in a period now where we have the, the honor and the privilege of sharing the gospel with people who have never heard it before mm. in our own neighborhoods. Mm. In America, a generation, two generations ago, it just wasn't, everyone had their conception of what Christianity was and sort of evangelism was about trying to break through some of those. Now mm. you just have people who 
did not grow up in Christian homes, mm. who did not go to schools where uh, scripture was sort of part of the part of the uh, the, the the course load, uh, sort of part of the environment. Um, what an incredible uh, uh, opportunity that is, and that applies at levels of leadership as well. Sometimes elites need help understanding what it what it means to be religious, and that's not their problem alone. That's a problem. That's a burden that we can take on as Christians as well. That is great to hear. Now, I, I wonder, a perception I think that I have at least is that amongst the reasons why Joe Biden uh, won the White House uh, last November and became president is because he gave at least a strong impression of being not hostile to Christians and reaching across the aisle. Because I think many people, certainly in America, would look at the, the Democrats, particularly in 2016, and think they don't want our vote. They're not, um, they might not hate us, but they're not interested in us. And I got the impression with Joe Biden, he was somebody who was a, and is a, a unifying character, has a faith of his own, and sought to, to reach out, and therefore brought people on board who voted for him, who perhaps wouldn't have done otherwise. Is, is that a fair characterization? And has it affected how the White House is today? Yes. So it is a fair characterization of why he won. I think it's a fair characterization of why he was so valuable as uh, President Obama's running mate. Joe Biden is is not the kind of man who's going out of his way to antagonize people. Mm. And frankly, we had we had Democrats who were running <laughs> to, to be the Democratic nominee in 2020. And to a certain extent, unfortunately, our, our nominee in 2016, I think too often fell into that trap of thinking that be, you could you could motivate your base enough to make up for persuadable voters that uh, you were turning off. And Joe Biden did not make that mistake. I'd also note, you know, it's important to recognize in, in the states, you know, still 70% plus of Americans are people of faith, the vast, vast majority of those being Christian. Uh, the Democratic Party is two-thirds people of faith. And so we don't have a secular major party in this country. We have two overwhelmingly Christian parties, though the Republican Party is more Christian than that. So it was important that Biden was a Christian, not just and, and, and not just that he was a Christian, but the way that he approached faith, the generous spirit that he had, the fact that he, you know, his slogan about restoring the soul of the nation, uh, he, he was borrowing from the Southern Christian Leadership Conference for that slogan, which which King founded. And, and mm. for uh, Black primary voters, that was not lost on them. That wasn't a major part of the coverage, but but th that was not lost on them. And so it was, it was really important. And then, you know, in the White House, I think you know, we'll, we'll have to see again, once you're president, it's easy to get siloed and sort of isolated. And it, it, if you're not actively, consistently pursuing alternative streams of information from outside sort of the party apparatus. And if you're not insisting repeatedly to your staff the kind of presidency that you want to have, the kind of generosity of spirit that you want to have, then it can, over time, it can, it can kind of calcify. When I hear the president speak, I, I, I think to myself, this is the same, this is the same man. He hasn't changed. I think what's going to be a test over the course of his his first term is 
Is he going to make the decision to spend the political capital that's necessary to appeal to voters who may not support him uh, in a re-election campaign? And that's a very difficult decision to make, but it's something that seems to be at the core of who Joe Biden is, who he presents himself to be. And so I just think it's an essential thing that they find uh, that this White House finds some real opportunities to reach out beyond sort of traditional Democratic constituencies. And, and, and I think they'll do that. And do you, do you think that Joe Biden, I mean, you, you'll obviously know him, you work with him in the White House as vice president. Yeah. Do you think that um, he has the ability to really recast the demographic almost, that his attitude, his generous spirited attitude towards uh, Christians in particular, people of faith, but also people with more traditional values, for a better word, that that actually might shift the, the kind of coalition of votes around the country and could have a lasting impact? It could. It depends on whether whether he's investing in a bench of, of leaders that see value in his his brand of politics or if, you know, he, at some, at sometimes he's referred to himself as a transitionary sort of president. But but I think what his election proved is that that, that we, we still need candidates like him. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, I, I think that'll be a that'll be a key thing. And then, and then it'll just be you know, one thing that affected us in, in the Obama administration is that when you're president, you have to make decisions and you could try when you're campaigning, you could try to avoid um, or even when you're in, in the legislative branch, you can try to avoid decisions that aren't set up in the in the way that you would prefer. When you're president, you get presented with things that you can't pass on. And so what happens is over the course of a term of a presidency, you, you have to make decisions that upset people. Uh, and, and so it, it'll be a real test for Biden when he has to make decisions that upset people. Mm. And when he has to make decisions that especially traditional conservatives can perceive as antagonistic, does Biden take the time, does the president take the time to explain the why of what he's doing? We neglected to do that at times during the first term at, at a high enough level that would really penetrate because I think the idea is, well, they're never going to support us anyway. So why, why sort of dampen enthusiasm among our supporters who just want to hear that everything that we do is great and, and there, are no, there are no costs to what we're doing? But in these polarized times, uh, it's important for civic leaders to explain to the other side why they're doing and sort of make sure that it's not lost in translation that they have positive motivations for, for doing what they do, that it's not, frankly, what all the activist groups on the right will say it is, which is anytime Biden does anything that they have, it's Biden's out to get you. Biden wants to, you know, destroy this, destroy that. He needs to be able to, uh, head some of that off. And I think he's proven that uh, when he does take the time to do that, there are enough voters listening, not just to help elect him, but mm -hmm. to start reweaving some of the fabric of American society mm -hmm. so that we aren't just solely divided along these partisan lines. You make a very good point there, I guess, just tactically, that it is wise to engage with those groups who are likely to vote against you, not least because it's good to diffuse their hostility. Maybe yeah. amongst the reasons that President Trump didn't get a second term was because he gave so many people a good reason to get rid of him. Yes. Um, and, you know, if you your opposition might still be your opposition, 
but they might not be so distraught or so de determined to defeat you if you've shown that you can reach across and be a, a consensus builder. I want to ask you a couple of last things, really. One is to go back to that heady first term in the White House with Barack Obama and, of course, those you know months leading up to through the primaries and him being elected. What, what did you make of Obama in terms of his faith? Yeah, well, so he had an innate sort of, well, innate's not, not the right word. You know, I think over his time as a community organizer, it's important for folks to understand, he was paid by the Catholic Church to be an organizer. And his organizing, there are a bunch of different like community organizing models. The model that he was working in was a church to church model. Um, so, so there are like door to door models there. He was in a church focused community organizing model. And from that, I think, in addition to some other experiences, gained a real respect for an understanding of the role that religion plays practically in the lives of community. In other words, it's not just, um, it's related directly to governance, uh, the, the role that churches play. When I think so many feel like it's this um, like good vibes <laughs> and that that sometimes politicians are gonna be able, no, it's like if you wanna do something around prisoner reentry, like Barack Obama understood the church is gonna be in the mix there. You wanna do something around global health. Well, the president during his time overseas and informed by Simon's community organizer understood that religious leaders are often the ways that you're able to get health and medical supplies directly to communities. And so that, that was the first, that always struck me. And then, you know, the second thing I'd say about him is um, he has a deeply conciliatory um, impulse. Uh, and he talks about this in his first biography as I me, mean, a part of it is trying to reconcile all these various streams of his life uh, the, the, the racial diversity in his family, even the religious diversity in his family. And that is something that he brought. You know, when we were talking before about trying to put yourself in the, in the shoes of those who even disagree with you, that's something that I think made him such an effective candidate. It's something that he's talking about even today, urging uh, the Democratic Party to, and particularly younger people, to understand the value of understanding where, where other people are coming from. So, th so, so that's important. And then I'll just say, and, and Tim, I don't mean to like elide your, elide your question. I've prayed with the president. I've talked about uh, all kinds of issues with, with the president. With public figures though, well, one thing we weren't doing is that the president wasn't coming to me uh, for confessional, you know, like we didn't, we didn't have, we didn't have that kind of relationship. As much as I could say about any public figure that that they're they're a Christian, Barack Obama uh, is is a Christian. His faith is important to him. One thing I've learned over the years is, you know, there's just always a degree of separation, uh, obviously, and so I'm just really careful about uh, sort of sort of uh, uh, giving testimonials. <laughs> Uh, and, and so just want to be careful, be careful there. But uh, you know, I've, I've prayed with the president. I've uh, seen the president minister to, especially in the wake of tragedies. And, and I think faith has been an imp important part of his, his journey as a, as a man. 
Michael, we could keep talking for hours and we best not because you've got to get on and do other things. You have a, a young family and loads to keep you busy now in really important work that you, you're doing in the time that you've spent outside the White House, taking that experience out into the, the world of you know uh, public life and, and faith. So we're really grateful for everything you're doing. We're especially grateful that you've given us your valuable time and I know the listeners will be too. I'll see you soon, pal. So good to be with you. Thank you so much. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Well, this is the part of the show where you get the chance to ask me anything about being a Christian in politics. Could be ethical, could be political, could even be personal. It could indeed. Well, this week we've got a question from Catherine from Consett in County Durham. She asks, why is it that we still can't sing in church? There are only certain numbers allowed in church, 70 in my large church, and socially distanced with face coverings. Yet football matches can go ahead with people cheering and shouting. Yeah, good question. And I think that obviously there is a a real level of inconsistency now creeping into the rules. If you're watching the Euros, you'll see thousands of people there um, cheering and, and shouting, singing even. And at our church, we're not singing indoors. We're singing outside in the car park. Our poor neighbors, what must they think of us? I think obviously the first thing to say is we have been and we should continue to be as Christians, good citizens being patient with this process. You know, I'm a Liberal Democrat. The government is Conservative. But I don't think this Conservative government is doing the things it's doing in order to attack um, religious freedom uh, or to undermine Christian worship. I don't think it's making the decisions it's making, even when it gets it wrong, deliberately to remove our freedoms. I don't, I don't attribute those motives to them, whether I think they're right or they're wrong. And I think the Christian approach to this is to be patient and to be a good citizen. But it is, I think, right for us to gently, if strongly, criticise the inconsistencies in the practices at the moment. And surely if you can sing in a, uh, an outdoor stadium, you know, when there's tens of thousands of you and there's kind of a roof, so it's not all that outdoors, it's possible for us to start singing inside again. And in Wales, that's becoming the possibility now. So I would, I would encourage Christians to be patient, to be understanding, not to ascribe uh, nefarious motives to the government in this and to nevertheless push so that soon we'll be able to sing again. I think it's not fair on the neighbours of my church in Kendal to have to put up with my singing as I do it in the car park. Far better for me to inflict that pain on my brothers and sisters inside the church. If you have a question for Tim, email farron at premier.org.uk. Well, as we come to the end of our programme this week, I'd love it if you'd join me in prayer. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for our leaders whom you have appointed. We might not always agree with everything that they do, but we recognise that you are in charge of all things. And so we ask for wisdom for our leaders, for our Prime Minister, for the First Ministers of the devolved countries, for all the ministers and uh, senior scientific uh, scientific and medical advisors who support our political leaders. We just pray for wisdom and for clarity and for uh, motives which are good and pure and are about serving the people and honouring you as decisions are made in the coming days about when and whether and how to unlock, whether it comes to international travel, whether it comes to um, removing social distancing restrictions and other restrictions within the UK and in different parts of it. So we do ask for wisdom, Lord, but we also ask that you would give um, a, a wisdom in particular to our leaders, local government leaders, uh, evolved nation leaders, our UK leaders, give them wisdom and patience with one another 
a, a love uh, and compassion for the people that they're elected to represent, but also a love and compassion for one another's people, that our leaders might work together for the common good, um, putting aside political differences and doing what is right. And I pray for all of us um, that as we see change happening, some of which we're comfortable with or excited by, and some of which we're actually really quite fearful of, we just pray that we would remember that you, Lord Jesus, are the same yesterday, today, and always. And we can have complete confidence in the future. Let us feel that confidence. Let it be more than just an intellectual understanding, but a real confidence. And may it be one that shines out in the communities that you have placed us, so that we be a strong witness to your eternal glory and your sovereignty. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Well, next week, we'll be joined by former Cabinet Minister Andrea Ledsom. I'm Tim Farron. Thank you so much for listening. You can listen to the podcast of this programme online by searching for A Mucky Business. Don't forget, if you have any questions you'd like to put to Tim in a future show, email farron at premier.org.uk.